Welcome to the Breakpoint Recap Show. I'm Gil Gross with Alex Gruskin. We have broken down all five episodes in depth of the new Netflix tennis docuseries, Breakpoint. We have also interviewed Taylor Fritz, the current world number five. And now we bring on someone who uh, would probably be in the, the world tops the world's top five in uh in screen not screenwriting uh show running and uh producing he is the executive producer and showrunner co-creator of billions and he is an expert on television so we've had taylor fritz now we are bringing on brian koppelman who by the way uh is not just a, a tv guy he's a tennis guy a tennis purist and we're going to talk to him about what did and what didn't work in breakpoint you know i'm just going to say it right now in the intro gruskin Brian had a lot of critiques for what we saw in the first five episodes of, of Breakpoint. Yeah, it's fascinating. You mentioned he's a showrunner. I think first and foremost, he would want to be known as a tennis fan. He talks about how it's been a passion of his through the duration of his life. And as such, you hear his passion for the sport throughout the course of today's interview. And, you know, I think he really wants this show to work. And that's why he is so adamant about I don't want to say the approach he would have taken in differentiating himself from the approach they did take, but again, talking about what makes a show like this compelling, what, in his opinion, you have to be targeting. We talk a lot about that target audience throughout the course of today's interview. I appreciate his candidness. I thought it was a fantastic interview. Me too, and I 100% agree with you. If he didn't care deeply about the sport, there's no way he would be on with us being as honest as he was about about some of his disappointments in the show. I, I think that's 100% correct. So without further ado, here is Brian Koppelman. Pleasure to be joined by co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer for Showtime's Billions, and he also co-directed one of the best tennis documentaries that I've ever seen. It's titled, This Is What They Want, an ESPN 30 for 30 on Jimmy Connors and his 1991 US Open run. And Brian, I want to start there because 30 for 30s famously give the creators a lot of freedom on what they want to do. And you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, yes. but I, as, as far as I know, Bill Simmons kind of co- comes up to you and says, what do you want to do a doc on? And, and you get to decide why did you choose to 100%. do the US Open? Well, first it's great to be here. You know, I'm a I'm a tennis fanatic. I think you you might you, you left that part out that I'm sure maybe in the <laughs> intro before I got here, but um which is part of the answer to the to the question. Uh and yes, Bill's amazing, you know. He he we've been friends. My creative partner David Levine and I have been friends with him for 20 years, maybe a little bit more than 20 years now and when we were we were texting about the notion of doing a 30 for 30 and dave and i were about to take off on an airplane and i i we looked at each other and i just texted simmons and i said um connor's 91 open and he immediately wrote back in uh and and that was really it that got us started then landing jimmy was hard you know because uh jimmy knows who he is and he knows the kind of angle of attack people might take in wanting to document who he is and who he was. And, um, but I was sure that we would do something that he would know was fair. 
uh, in, in the end. And that was the sort of communicating that to him, finding people who were friends with him, who knew us and who he would trust, who were able to say to him, you know, you won't have any creative control or input, but if you cooperate, uh, you will be treated fairly. You will be represented accurately by people who understand who you were and understand why you mattered so much and what you did for the game of tennis. Because what could get lost in his antics is that he was really part of the reason that tennis was an essential part of the culture in the 70s and 80s. And um, and we we did understand that we we showed it. And look, um, I grew up working at the US Open. So that's when you're, you know, it was incredibly personal. Uh, Dave and I grew up together and he didn't work at the Open, but he certainly came and hung out with me there. And that was like the best job I ever had. It, like if, if I had a normal job, basically for anybody except me now, that would be the best job they ever had. Like I get to do this incredible thing for a living. But in a way, like, you know, getting to work there back then, and I can't remember if we talked about this at all last time I was on the pod, but, you know, I think I graduated high school 84. So I think I worked there the three years like that summer and then like the summer before senior year, junior year and, and 10th grade, those three summers. And at that time, if if you had a, a badge that got you in you and you would show up early enough, you could hit on all the outer courts and you could also hit on the grandstand. You know, at that time, it was the grandstand was the there was no Billie Jean King, right? It was Ash and then the, the grandstand and you could. I mean, it was Louis Armstrong was the main thing. There wasn't even an ash. It was Louis Armstrong and then um, the grandstand. Those were the two feature courts, really. And I hit on both of those. You could kind of like you would get to kind of know the security guys. They would look the other way. If they saw you there every day, you'd get, the, you know, you'd be setting up the week before or four or five days before you'd be in there setting up for your booth. And then we got to just. Uh, watch all these matches and got to sneak into the players locker rooms and there was no security it was like way before the world became um so security conscious and so if you were 16 years old and you had some rackets in your hands and you know you were goofily dressed in like some alesse because that's what you were selling i mean you just could just kind of wander around so i had this incredible connection to the players of that era and to that tournament in particular, I mean, I would be there from to an hour or two before the gates opened. And most days I stayed until the very last match was over that night. And, you know, that's an intense time, 15, 16, 17 years old. And obviously I'd like played tennis my whole life. And so I was tennis camps and it was a culture that I just cared a lot about. Well, uh, I ball boyed in 2013 and 2014 at the U.S. Open, grew up in Westchester, New York, which is in some ways kind of similar to Long Island, a suburb of, of New York City. And uh, I can tell you I didn't manage to to hit on any of the courts. So I was <laughs> I was a little late to that, they shut, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, they shut you guys. There's no chance, right? Fact, <laughs> no. And, and, no. Uh, so that's, that's incredible. Uh, that's an awesome experience. But Brian, uh, as someone in TV, which went on to be your, your real career because you didn't uh, continue to work at the U.S. Open forever. Could have been you, a chair you're, you're in the business yeah. of, of building good characters, right? It is, it is what you are incredible at. 
So now you watch Breakpoint. They don't have the luxury of creating the characters from scratch because they're real people. Uh, but I'm curious from from your perspective as an, an expert on characters, which characters do you think in those first five episodes, which ones worked and maybe which ones didn't work as well? Well, I would because they're real people, I don't want to I, I, let's step back. Let's just step back and look at it a little bit from 35,000 feet because I'm I'm not I don't know how the two of you feel about it and I would love to have a conversation about it. Um even more than just being interviewed uh here because I'm trying to figure out why I found the thing not so compelling. Um and I think I wonder if like I understand the reasons it's good for the sport. Like I can understand what's um sort of what's really useful about it to all of us who love tennis. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm someone who still play four days a week when I can, I would play five days a week if, if I, if I could a, a week that I played three days or two, I feel like I haven't really, you know, my game's just like not improving. It's just staying there. <laughs> and if I play tw- once a week, I feel like I'm just rapidly declining. So, but I found myself incredibly distanced from all the characters. Like I did not feel that the show did a really, and I'm trying to understand if it, if it has to do with being such um, a close viewer of tennis for such a long time, or if it has to do with the media training that these athletes have had. And even, you know, in the Berrettini episode where you, the two of them, you, you should feel something about their this journey that they're on and they just you know there's one line in it about the selfishness of tennis players but but uh that's the only kind of like you know peek into it and and then they for for me how did can i just ask i haven't heard the pods you've done about this yet so can can how do the two of you feel about the show how did it hit 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 you both um as such close observers and participants well, I think you nailed it in the sense that we are all trapped within the tennis bubble. So there are certain developments to us that are less relevant or even dated within the show. For instance, they frame Casper Ruud as a rising player. Well, if you follow the game closely, in January 2023, he's not a rising player. He's a two-time slam finalist, a world number two. We know who Casper Ruud is. I do think, and I do want to have this conversation from that 30,000-foot view, you talked about the Jimmy Connors documentary you did and the idea of showing his flaws but remaining fair. I think, first and foremost, that's what struck me as disappointing about this show. And I'm curious if you felt this way. It was very conflict-averse. And I just wonder, dating back to your experience, how difficult it must be to go to a Taylor Fritz or go to, obviously, the elephant in the room, Nick Kyrgios, and say, hey, we want to talk about your flaws because we want to make you a compelling character. That's what attracts, I think, everyone to shows like this is seeing the flaws, seeing how they rise above. It's not just the flaw. Like, yes, drama needs conflict. Like for you to want to watch something, there has to be conflict in it. That's if I'm creating something with Dave that's a fictional, like a fictional construct, or if you're making a documentary, the documentaries that are most compelling, even when they're hagiographic in a certain way. Like if you look at When We Were Kings, 
which clearly celebrates Ali in, in, in this incredible way, man, every second of that thing, there's, there's conflict, not just because it's a boxing match at the end of it, but George Foreman's journey there. Um, uh, Ali's journey, uh, uh, you know, uh, each step along the way involves some sort of conflict. And, and, and look, what we all know about the world of tennis is like, there's conflict in these motherfuckers walking out the locker room before their interview. Like who steps where everyone's pissed off. You know, you know, my superstitions or whatever. And you took two right foot steps. You me up or you, you know, she wouldn't talk to me and, and turned her back while I was doing. Being... I mean, there's opportunities for conflict just are constant. And they 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 avoided that. Also, they were unable to create drama for they didn't it, like it was amazing to me. The choices that and, and look, making documentaries really hard. I, I never, that's why like, I don't ever, ever slam fellow filmmakers. Like they did a lot of things right. And that's what I'm trying to understand. Like, meaning, you know, I, I was trying to understand if you're a novice to the game or if you're someone who used to kind of follow tennis, but you don't really know it, but they made certain choices. Like the way, even in their match coverage, they would kind of jump sets or they would not, they, they, and then for a knowledgeable tennis fan, they tried to create drama where people are like on serve or something and they try to make it like somebody's losing. And it's like, <laughs> it, no, they're not losing, dude. It's three, four, like nobody's winning and nobody's losing. Mm -hmm. And um, they, they totally like, so that made me wonder if maybe the biggest problem is when they were having their meetings, they were not clear about who the audience was because it's not really set up like that they, they didn't do the thing where they explain to the person who's a neophyte here's how a five set match works here's what matters here's why when you have to win by two. they didn't there's all sorts of work they didn't do to lay out how tennis works so then okay you're marketing this to you're making this for people who are pretty savvy about tennis well, then, if you're making it for people who are savvy about tennis, you can't sort of try to f with the way we watch tennis. You 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 can't try to try to falsely create these moments of drama within the matches that aren't there. Also, like tennis fans know who won Indian Wells. We know what was at stake in Indian Wells. We were all talking to each other online. And when we were like during Indian Wells, so there were just, you know, um, sort of for me, it, it never, I was, I can't fathom being bored. You know, I'm someone who can watch, I can watch tennis channel for a long time. I can, I can watch tennis TikToks. I mean, what I wanted was a separate track where Craig Shapiro was talking about the matches. Though. <laughs> you know, that's what I wanted. Uh, and, 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 and this was so um, sanitized and boring that, and I can't, if I'm bored in watching something about tennis, it's a really, I think a bad, bad sign. Yeah. So I, I think, where we're at a disadvantage as tennis people is we aren't we are not going to learn as much. Did you watch the the golf one full swing at all? I I started and I'm pretty like um checked out on golf too. Okay. But I, here's why I'm not sure that's true. Like like in in there are plenty of things that we know a lot about. Like um like if because of these other events, like if I watch a thing on poker, 
Like if I watch cutaway during a poker tournament to the story of Antonio and Phil or, um, you know, whatever the cutaway is going to be to, I'm still like pretty engaged. And obviously like I'm in the, a very small group of the most knowledgeable people about that because I've studied it so closely for so long. Did, I, I, well, what did you think? Like watching well, the golf one, yeah, that was good. What were your thoughts? I, I think, I think because we, because we know, because we live this, you need to strip down the access to a level where things yes. feel new to us. And I think the golf one does a little bit better with that where, oh, we're in Brooks Kepka's house. This is what his house looks like. Uh, he's hanging out with his wife and, and, and you're a fly on the wall, right? And it's, there's also more conflict in the golf because of the live thing. They got lucky in that. And did they shy away from it? No, they leaned into it. It was a main topic. So you have conflict. You have more, more access. You're on, you're on Ian Poulter's private jet. Uh, we were on Nick Kyrgios's private jet, but other than that, we didn't, we, we weren't uh, with players when they were traveling from tournament to tournament, which is a huge part of what they do on tour. So I, I think for us, it, it's harder to teach us stuff. The way you can remedy that is with extreme access, stripping down those walls. I didn't feel like that really happened. I agree. And I think like, you know, people have, I mean, if you look at the Arthur Ashe documentary, now granted his life, really allowed for it but you watch that documentary and you're really invested i i've read like like you guys i've read the mcfee like i've read all about the biggest moments in ash's life every article that was ever written about him when i was i know everything about that guy and still that documentary i sat down and i could not take my eyes off it i found it so compelling um and they found stuff like i really didn't know about his college years i didn't know that he and kareem were at college at the same time there were interesting like fascinating things about th that here yeah i i and maybe the golf you know it's weird the golfers partially because of the pro-ams i think like the way golfers interact they're always marketing very the golfers know that they have to reveal parts of who they are um and maybe it's the way people are golf fans and golf fans in america like golf is um has a bigger impact and so these people are more famous and more used to engaging in those ways like rory has to be somebody who talks about who he is um he just does it all the time same you know same with speed same with uh like a big i think a big um list of those dudes they they do that you know i mean even um even this year um one of the quarters um the one who, who played with the the guys, you know, she went out with the, she talked about, Hey, I wish they would stop talking about the fact that I'm good for a woman. I loved playing with them. Like she was willing to just totally talk in a way that tennis players rarely do. Like, you know, I mean, if you get a tennis player for two minutes talking privately, they'll start talking about Tiafo's forehand and how it's like holding him back and why he needs to rebuild it and all this stuff. And there was none of that. Like nobody, there was no sort of well, like. 
No, it's interesting, and I apologize for interrupting. It's interesting to no, hear please. you say that because I think – I want to talk about one moment that worked because I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts. It was – you know, again, we talked about episode five and something that worked so well, the Nadal warm-up and watching him in the hallway, right? I can still hear the music, the da 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 and he's going side to side, yeah. and he's in Casper Root's space, and he's in Felix's space, and you can feel, you know – him suffocating them. That was conflict. That was showing tennis at its finest. It's how do you capture, in my opinion, more moments like that? Because, and this is the question I wanted to ask you, I think it might be pretty hard to show tennis in this medium in the sense that a good tennis point, it's probably 72 seconds. And like, are you really going to give up 72 seconds of a 43-minute episode showing one point? I'm curious how you would go about showing that tennis, showing the physicality, uh-huh. because I think that's something this lacked, and I just, I'm not sure how to best do it. Well, I learned that this, Dave and I learned this in making the Connors documentary because the most famous point um, mm-hmm. where Jimmy um, returns all the overheads, of course. I forget nope. the guy's name, the tall guy. Har- it's Harhus, right? Is it yeah, Harhus? Yeah, Paul Harhus. Shout out Florida so State. Playing up Paul Harhus, right? So originally when we cut that, we did not show the whole point. We cut away and then came back. And we showed it to a friend of ours, the director, Steven Soderbergh, who's a legend. And he said, I need to see that whole – You gotta. you're talking about this point. I know why your instinct is to cut away. Just try. Go in your editing room and just try – what would it look like if you played all you did all the time and then you just played that point? So we got to understand it fully. And in fact, I think that 72 seconds that you're talking about, if you could set that 72 seconds up properly and then on the back end talk about it, the reward of that would be enormous for the viewer to understand. But okay, let's dive into this Nadal thing. So if if I were gonna do a documentary about Nadal that included Nadal. There's no way to do it without asking him about his rituals in a non-casual way. So when he would say, well, it's just something I do, I would want to be like, okay, talk about how you pour your orange juice in the morning. <laughs> like, does that um, compulse, do your compulsions, talk about what it makes you feel, why you have to do those things. And then I would talk to other players. Hey, when Nadal's doing that stuff, what does it make you feel like? The fact that he gets more time, the fact that everybody accounts for it, the fact that he's able to allow his superstitions to take up this much time. And everyone else has to lock down their superstitions into that much time. And yeah, maybe five or six people would go, he's the greatest of all time, whatever he has to do, it's good for the game. But you'd find some person who would go that. And now you get one who says that, you go back to Nadal and you go, I I don't know what to tell you, but the number 174 player just said, you know, you have OCD and it shouldn't be accommodated for. You should have to go take some meds. And like, you know, now you're, now we're really in it. But they, that's, they weren't going to do any of that, right? Well, so uh, the reason uh, to follow up, Nadal didn't agree to be in the show. Like Djokovic wasn't right. a part of the show. And I do worry, like, is Taylor, so it's, a, you know, I love Taylor Fritz. He was kind enough to come on the show. He gave an interview about his participation. But like, to get back to this theme, like, Taylor Fritz has a son who I believe is six years old. Like, they didn't talk about him. It's like, are you saving that for season two? Like, what are we doing there? It's just, and if you feel like, again, in terms of breeding rivalries, right? Like, Nadal was the elephant in the room that everyone was chasing. At Indian Wells, we know he's in the finals, but they don't talk about that. Obviously, we know he's going to win the French Open. They don't really talk about that. 
Does it just they come down to like skip it? They kind of skip. The, the, How about the Australian Open the final or the Australian Open right. final where it's like, are we going to talk about the Medvedev match? And I just wonder, like, again, you're making that choice because he's not a part of the story. Do you tell that story anyways, or do you have to exclude that? Well, I don't know what their their deals were, but again, keeping it at, uh, yeah. like, I, I, I just, again, what I really wonder is who they decided they were making the show for. And I think I would have chosen to make it really for tennis fans. Like the advantage of making a 30 for 30 is Bill Simmons wants you to make it to get the fanatics for that thing first. You know, when we were making our first movie, we knew we needed to make a movie and write a script that the poker players were going to respond to first. Some of them may be like, there's not that much cheating, but they would understand that we were deeply inside the game and had a real point of view from people who had lived it. And you could disagree with that point of view. You could have lots of problems with, you know, on fourth street, someone would have played this hand differently. That's great. That's a great conversation to have, but um, they did not spend a lot of time. uh, And to me, it seems on talking about patterns in the show. Like, how do you make a five? Did they? Did I miss that? Well, because no, Brian. Like a... uh, the the example that we loved, Nadal played Berrettini. You would have thought Berrettini lost because of the mental game. It's like <laughs> yeah. no, he lost because right. of the backhand. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, because well, it, but but go, you know, as you know, not, um, going further, they lost because Nadal gets to his spots, yeah. and he's able to impose his spots on you, and he's going to send you out far to your forehand so that then he can whip the f- his forehand to your backhand and like or whatever the patterns that that one guy was able to get to that the other wasn't basically anyone who knows tennis at all it's all you talk about it's like well where 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 how do you want to set this person up um who benefits from short points who benefits from long points when do you have to decide you're going to put this much less topspin and go that much closer to the net so that you can take time away from your opponent who's taking the ball um on the short hop who is not, like right there's all these ways and so strategy and tactics were kind of out the window where that stuff's fascinating and if you explain that stuff to a regular person like if you would say to a regular person look often what happens in rallies other when when you're not playing against servers who completely dictate well at first i'd go listen Everyone should know most service games, supposed to, the expectation is you're going to hold your serve. So what this game is really about are breaks of serve. So then you know, as a Phyllis storyteller, okay, what I'm waiting for are moments where there are inflections, inflection points where break is, breaks of serve are possible. Okay, we're going to gear toward those moments. Who plays those moments better? And how do they pl- play those moments better? And right, that's the way that that sort of like goes. And so we when we don't, see the opportunity for that laid out here we don't really know what we're watching for they never really set up what okay what's your strategy in this match what tactics are you going to deploy to make that strategy happen how do you study your opponent what does that really mean um like yeah was it interesting that their room was so messy totally interesting but more but if you're that's a different for for one second right but i don't know i want to understand Right, because I I go home after I play a match, and I'm totally thinking about how will I beat that person next time, or what did they do to exploit 
what weakness of mine and why couldn't I, how come when I hit that serve wide and they put it to the middle of the court, I hit it four times in a row. I hit an inside out forehand that they got to. Well, why didn't I one time just go back down, you know, back cross court? Like I'm living in, in that space and I'm watching tennis that way as I imagine you two are watching tennis that way. Yeah, absolutely. You're preaching to the choir. I think Gruskin and I, in terms of how we cover tennis, it's yeah. um, maybe 70% more inside the line stuff than a lot of other people are covering tennis. So so it it's what we love about it as well and how we engage with the sport. You've asked a couple of times, like, who do you, was the target audience? I'm pretty yeah, confident. I'm pretty confident it was the casuals because I think I think and and you know this about streaming services, right? Netflix saw Drive to Survive, it was a success, and then the question is, how can we do it again, right? And isn't what Drive to Survive actually did is bring in people to this sport that felt super foreign and made Americans like it? But they did that by by actually having expert point of view. Agreed. Agreed. They and and you learn about have, what it is. Uh, they, that you learn about um, when you can pass and when you can't pass and how your teammates work. And they didn't do that. Like, I, I'm not sure that that's, to me anyway, I didn't um, I didn't recognize even an attempt. How do you not, how do you get through a five, a five episode thing about tennis and not really talk about break points being the most important points and setting up for break points as like yeah. the kind of, difference maker and tense what it's the whole the whole game the whole yeah. thing is about that um and um and about and about um like you know uh what's more important in 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 uh, is it taking advantage of your opponent's weekend weaknesses or finding a way to get your opponent to play into your strengths do you have a two-minute conversation with brad gilbert he's going to talk about that a fat like the whole time like you know when you're training what's more important uh you know should tiapo spend time on his forehand trying to get it to be above average or should he really spend so much more time on the things that are his super weapons his backhand his speed is like like there are all these things that the show could have for me anyway as a close follower participant um focused on and then yeah well, the other thing like you guys are saying is the calendar, as soon as you become any kind of tennis fan, you understand the calendar. Mm -hmm. And so you understand that Australia makes you think about the French and yeah, the, the, the sort of lack of that conversation wasn't great. So, um, you know. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I would also say looking at F1, I think something that's a little easier, and this is just team sport versus individual as it relates to tennis, is you can. it's easier to be compelled by this team or view this team as a villain because you can paint them in a certain light without demonizing any specific individual. And the one thing I worry about with tennis is it's such an individual you know, and personality-driven sport that like... It comes down to, are the characters compelling? Like, is this an individual that it makes sense and is easy to root for, root against? I'm curious if there's, and this is my last question for you, if there's any specific character right now in tennis, the obvious ones, Nadal, Djokovic, they are who they are. But is there one character in tennis right now who you find most compelling that you would want to see included in this? Sure, I'll answer that in one yeah. sec. Um, 
I, the other thing that the F1 show has, Drive to Survive has, is death is on the line. Yeah, death's sure. on the line. So that's when death is on the line. Even if they don't talk about all that, that, that's just we all understand things are going 210 miles an hour. Sure, death's on the line. Their emotions are heightened because when you cut somebody off, their death's on the line. Um, and that's just not the case in our sport. So uh, that's another sort of reason that I didn't love that. That's another reason I think that for the casual fan, that maybe targeting the casual fan isn't as easy because the 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 adrenaline that exists in F1 is doesn't exist here because of the stakes, especially like if you're not building to why these moments feel life or death, because that's the way you get around that, right? The way you get around that is, if you ever talk to a tennis player when they relive these matches in real life, they're life and death moments to them because they put so much on the line, they've trained so hard. But even the way they tell Berrettini's story, you, you don't really get the sense that like he felt like it was life and death um, in that in that, that moment. Coco Goff is the answer to that question. Um, uh, and uh, I'm fascinated by Coco and I'm fascinated by, um, how do you say her name? Uh, Pegula? Pe how do you Pegula. say Pegula. Pegula. That, that's my, yeah. that's my Pegula. That's my pick. I'm fascinated by her too, for different reasons, right? Coco, because of the expectations, the talent and her brain, like she's so interesting and smart. And, but sometimes as you both know, people who have the capacity for introspection that she has, it can torture them as tennis players and so why you know if she can ever master the big moments the big spots and she's young enough and she once she does i think it's like she could just win and win and win um if she can master not double faulting in big moments and it's so hard right if you're somebody whose brain thinks a lot it's a problem uh and it can be so but i kind of love everything about her approach to tennis and then Pagula, because who she is, the way she grinds and where she comes from and the fact that she is a nation state because she's a billionaire. Uh, and she clearly has an awareness of her position in Buffalo and in America and like does everything right on all those fronts. And she's a scrappy competitor, works her ass off. So I find her totally fascinating. I'm heartbroken that Jen Brady got the injury because she was somebody who I was so fascinated by too because the route she took and you know that match against that match was two years ago um against pagula was so great like i really was really compelled by her and then um rude and rune are both really fascinating figures too um i think and like whether they'll fully get all the way to um where they can go and then i don't know enough about them but the but um ben the college kid Shelton. you obviously yeah you guys are obviously obsessively followed for a long time ben ben shelton i can't wait to see what happens like that's another incredible story to to follow i think um in the next uh, in the next five, we know for a fact uh, that we are getting Alcaraz, and I, I think that's important for the sport because this is a new star, and it's time for fans to to learn more about him. So I would I would add that, but that's a great list. Um, love it.
Yeah, Alcaraz is. I mean, yeah. I mean, for me, I, 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 I was watching him so closely the last two years, and I'm so, you know, mm-hmm. he. We all knew he was going to be number one. It's great when somebody fulfills that. It's going to be great to see how many, you know, how many slams he's going to win. Whether he can ever, you know, end up up getting close to what sort of like some of these, you know, other guys have done because he's so young as he's, you know, same age as Pete, right? When Pete won his first. So that feels like really exciting to follow too. But he, in a way, he kind of feels like he has a great sense of who he is. And um, I'm, I'm interested in people as they're trying to like really get the whole, the whole way there, but it's a great time for tennis and it's a great time for American tennis. It's like, we, we have five people who are, five guys who are good and a bunch of women who are really good. So I think it's a good time for, you know, American tennis too. Very true. All right. Let's, um, let's get some, some of the billions fans in here just at, at the end. I know uh, the, the big news a couple of weeks ago is that you get to stay in the world, in the universe of billions, because uh, there's going to be uh, spinoffs. Would that be a, an appropriate word? There, there are going to be other shows within the, it seems like within the world uh, universe of billions. And then last night um, it was announced from the night before that Bobby, Damian Lewis is coming back for this next season. He's in season seven. He's going to be in about half the season. It's been incredible to get to work with uh, Damien again. And um, he's a great tennis player, too. As if you saw the episode where he's hitting with Maria Sharapova, that's really Damien, <laughs> nobody else. And uh, um, yeah, that's going to be great, you know, great for people to see. I can't, I can't wait for people to see it. We can't wait as well. Thanks so much for coming on the Breakpoint Recap Show, Brian. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, fellas.